Good afternoon. It is April 10th here in San Diego and you are listening to the RPO podcast. I'm your host, Clark Farenthal. Thank you all for tuning in. So for today and really for the rest of the few times we'll be making this, I'm going to be going ahead and discussing the upcoming 2020 draft, which we are just 13 days away from now. I'm going to be giving you some analysis onto who I think is the best perspective pick for you guys and your teams from round one through picks one through 32 starting even with the most obvious choices. For the per- sake of this, though, I'm not going to be having any trades included or anything like that. I feel like with including trades, it gets too jumbled and stuff, and certain prospects would have at certain picks, it gets too fine with adding drafts, uh, draft trades and whatnot. So I might later on, after the first original 1 through 32 picks, change it up so I do include trades. But I think for now, just for my own sanity, maybe just a little bit, it'll be easier if I do just keep it to a no-trade mock. So with that being said, we're going to go ahead and jump right into it because I don't want to keep you all waiting. I know your time is precious and so is mine. So to start off, we are going to go to pick number one. And as a commissioner would come to the podium, he would say, with the first pick in the 2020 NFL Draft, the Cincinnati Bengals select... No shocker here, probably the easiest pick in the draft, Joe Burrow. Okay, look, for everyone who's saying that the Dolphins might go out there and move four or five picks, I just want you to understand that is not going to happen. Look, I think it's becoming very clear over these past maybe month or so that the Dolphins have really pushed hard here in an attempt to get this pick from the Bengals, and it continually seems as if no one is picking up the, I mean, they're picking up the phone, but no one's really, oh, what's the word for it? Listening or caring, I guess you could say, to these trade ideas that Miami is pitching to them. I honestly think that the only way that Cincinnati would trade this number one overall pick is if you have the Saints making that Ricky Williams type deal where they offer every single pick that they have in this year's draft and possibly multiple picks in the first round in the following years. I think Cincinnati values Burrow far too much. I mean, if you just look at it, the kind of caliber player that he is is just off the charts. Last year, he had a 94.9 pro football focus rating from profootballfocus.com as a college quarterback. That was tops not only last year, but it's in the top five for the last 10 years in college football. The only guys he trailed behind are Baker Mayfield and um, Kyler Murray. And, those two are also previous number one overall picks. So I, th- I think it just makes far too much sense. When you look at Burrow as a prospect, I think what really stands out to you is just his overall accuracy. Um, like Especially when you compare him to other quarterbacks too. I, like One stat that really jumps out to me is that his 84.3% completion percentage with a clean pocket. Now that's about five and seven points higher than these two guys who people think the Bengals might consider in Tua Tungavailoa and Justin Herbert. Not only that, but I think when you just take into the consideration, too, that Burrow put together possibly one of the greatest, if not the greatest year statistically for a quarterback, throwing 60 touchdowns to five interceptions and beating eight, um, excuse me, seven top-ranked teams in the AP poll, I mean, that's just insane. I, I can't think of a quarterback, and I don't think that there has been a quarterback, let alone a team, that has actually been able to accomplish that. Um, and going off of that as well, his there's so many states that just, traits that stick out to me when you watch him on tape the timing anticipation on his throws is phenomenal um really when you look at it too the play breaks down burrow has no problem going off script i I think it only actually almost enjoys it 
And you could see that, like, for example, when they played Clemson in the national title game. Granted, the play was called back, but I believe it was the second play from scrimmage that LSU had the ball on its own five, and he evades two D linemen from Clemson, gets out of the pocket, and hits uh, um, Jefferson down the field. I mean, it's eventually called back, but it just shows cases how perfectly and how well Joe Burrow does off script. And I again, I wanted. I know there's so many reports out there saying, okay, the Burrow wants to play for a team that's going to win, and oh, the, I mean, it's he doesn't want to go to Cincinnati. And to me, I just it's just such eyewash for so many different reasons. I mean, for the biggest thing inside of the teams that have top five picks, no teams won more games in the regular season than the Cincinnati Bengals. They had an over 500 record. And I understand that people say that Mike Brown doesn't have a commitment to winning. But at the same time, you have to understand the Bengals this offseason, just in this free agency period, may have kind of totally thrown off that ship. They spent $127 million. Think about that. When's the last time you heard of the Bengals spending $127 million on free agency? They brought in key players like DJ Reader, Trey Waynes, Von Bell. It was surprising to say the least to see a team like Cincinnati spend that much capital on free agents. I think that was in an effort to show Joe Burrow that this team is committed to winning and that he should come there. I think there should be no hesitation with this pick. I think overall, when I look at a guy like Joe Burrow, I think his closest comp, some people want to say Tom Brady. Don't, I don't slap that label on the kid. I, there's no way that you should compare Joe Burrow to Tom Brady. It's just insane. I think to compare any prospect to the greatest quarterback of all time is just unbelievably unfair. So to me, when I look and I watch film, I, I think I see more of a combination of maybe Tony Romo and Kurt Warner. I, I think Burrow, um, from some aspects, has their two games. I think he'll struggle. The things I look for in terms of things to watch out with Burrow more often than not is some things like arm strength. I think it's clear that he doesn't have elite arm strength. It's not to say that it's not good, but it's not going to be as much as, say, a guy like Herbert in the draft or Tungavailoa. As well, um, some of the things he has an average release. I, I don't think his release is particularly quick. And uh, granted, that could be a problem like guys like Brian Leftwich, who had a more delayed delivery. But again, I, I don't think it's nearly as I just think it's average. I, I don't think it's quick. I don't think it's slow. And then I think the biggest thing people, at least in my mind, should worry about is that he was sort of this one-year wonder. I mean, there was 2018 was not a terrible year, but I think if he had decided to come out of the draft, out into the draft that year, he maybe would have been a fourth, third-round pick. But he did have this astronomical jump into year 2019, so it may scare people that, okay, maybe he's this, especially if you're a Bengals fan, oh, maybe he's Achilles Smith again, and you just don't want to go down that path. But frankly, when I when I look at Burrow, there's so many more positives than negatives here and it's almost it's almost too easy to pick organizationally and I think even if a guy like Burrow does flop you as the organization if you're the Bengals you sit there and say okay there's so many people on this guy there's so many times where teams are calling us on the phone saying we want that number one pick so I I think if anything it just makes far too much sense so the number one player off the board Joe Burrow Cincinnati Bengals lock in new guy wearing number nine. Second overall pick I have the Washington Redskins taking defensive end Chase Young from Ohio State now again like I said these first two picks to me are pretty routine I think when you look at Washington there's really not a need at least in my mind to take a quarterback you bring in Ron Rivera who I think was a great hire in the offseason and I think he's a guy who would want to work with a player like um, Dwayne Haskins, who they just took a year ago. And I, I know that the ownership didn't really 
seemed to buy into him, and then you had the issue with Jake Rudin really not loving him. But at the same time, I, I don't think it makes any sense to try to maybe take a reach here on a quarterback like some people may have suggested with them being interested in Tonga Vailoa. I just don't think it's a possibility. I, I think Chase Young makes a lot of sense. And for many reasons, I think Chase Young could possibly be the best prospect in this draft. I mean, when you look at him, he's a freaking athletic freak. I mean, his first step is unbelievable. He possesses power and size to be blockers on the inside and the outside. His ability to get to the quarterback is by far the best in the class. I mean, you won't find a better pass rusher in college football. His production was unreal. It's, I mean, he showed up through, routinely throughout the season, but I'll get to some of those issues about showing up a little bit later, though. Um, good lateral step. He's a good tackler in the open field. I think you didn't really see a lot of weaknesses in his game. Um, and I always thought that he was very loose and agile down at his hips, which allowed him to explode through the front line. So overall, when you look at Chase Young as a defensive end prospect, he has just about everything that you want. He's not really missing anything, and he's very much what I would call the prototypical defensive end that you would see in the NFL now. He's, I mean, if you go back 10, 15 years ago, your DNs were typically a little bit slower. They weren't as athletic. They were there maybe to set edges. I mean, obviously rushing the quarterback has been the number one priority with DNs for a while. But Young, I think, is just that new breed that everyone wants. He's fast. He's athletic. He's strong. He's a high motor. It's everyone who's sitting there trying to get a new version of someone like Julius Peppers. And I mean, I'm not saying that he's going to be that. But I think when I look at Chase Young, there's so many red, you know, just check marks that he hits every single time that it would be insane to me if Washington decided to skip on this guy and take a chance on someone like a quarterback in that scenario. I just don't see that happening. Now, again, there, with every prospect in the NFL, there's always going to be red flags. With Chase Young, I think there's very minimal. But I think when I see Chase Young, the things that stand out to me the most that worry me was just a couple things. The first thing that really sticks out, um, he has a lack of ball awareness, I think, sometimes in the run game and when the ball gets out of the quarterback's hands, say on screens and whatnot. I think when watching Chase Young, it really stood out that he had a nose for pass rushing, but he needed to shore up when the ball was coming to his side running. You could see in the tape that sometimes he would just get lost. He didn't really know what was going on in terms of play recognition, and the ball would just kind of seem to go away from it. Now, I totally think that's something that's easily coachable. I would much rather have an issue like that where it's just a matter of, I mean, I guess you could say just paying more, not necessarily more attention, but just having more of awareness overall. I think awareness is something that's easily more fine-tunable at a defensive end than anything else. It's much easier to have that than, say, an issue with, okay, you know, he's he's a lack of motor or something like that. Um, also, possibly one of the bigger things is that he, sometimes he has, does have a, tension, uh, a tendency to play upright. And what I mean by play upright is that he does seem to stand up and lose some of that power that we have in his lower half. And I think I think, again, that's something that's just going to change with technique. I think for Chase Young in college, he got away with playing upright just because he was so good. And I think in the transition, he'll find coaches definitely in the NFL who are going to teach him to play in that lower pad level, teach him a couple new moves to add to his arsenal to just make him that much more of an elite pass rusher. And possibly, I think the biggest thing, and I think this also knocked him out of the ability to be the number one overall pick, is that he didn't show up in big games for Ohio State. Now, when you watch him play Michigan, Michigan State, and Clemson, he didn't record a sack. And now you can say, okay, well, they were doubling him and stuff like that. Yeah, they were doubling him, but he was Ohio State's best player on that defense. And it, I mean, it's close because they have a great cornerback who I'll talk about later who's coming out. 
But Chase Young is their biggest player, didn't show up in those crucial games. And I think it's always key to kind of watch that because that's usually the best talent they're going to be going up against. Like, just think about times where other pass rushers have come up against it. Like, one scenario that always sticks out to me is when uh, South Carolina played Michigan back in 2013 in the Outback Bowl. Jadavion Clowney dominated Taylor Lewan in that game, and that was regarded as best offensive tackle he would see. So I think when you see high-level prospects step up to the plate when they play other high-level prospects at another premier position, like a D-end versus an offensive tackle coming out in the draft, I think that gives you a really kind of a good idea of, okay, what is this guy capable of of coming into the next level? And again, and that's not to say that I don't think Chase Young is not going to excel at the next level, because I absolutely do. I think he's too much of a physical specimen and too big of a beast in terms of overall production to lack coming out of Ohio State. But I just think that's something you need to keep an eye on. I, I It does scare me a little bit when guys have a serious dip off of production when playing these high-profile teams. Now, for my player comparison to Chase Young, I think I'm going to go with, from what I've gone with and what I've seen, I think Julius Peppers is his highest comp. I think in terms of measurable, they're very similar in terms of how they tested. But overall, at the same time, I think just looking at the two players in their times at college with their athleticism, their size, their speed, their ability with that first down, I think it's clear that those two mirror each other pretty well. And I think if the Redskins got Chase Young at number two and he had a career close to Julius Peppers, you would say that's an absolute home run. I think Julius, um, I think that Chase Young at the number two overall pick to Washington is a home run. I, I think that would be the best pick that they could possibly come out with. All right, now moving on to the third overall pick in the draft, which is immediately the Detroit Lions down the clock. I have them taking with their selection in the first round, Jeff Okoda, cornerback from Ohio State. Now, I'm pretty sure I just butchered that last name, but it's whatever. It's fine. Hard last name to say. What are you going to do? But I think in this scenario, if I was doing a trade, this would probably be the team that would trade down or back into the draft, the team who is quarterback needy. But again, for the sake of my sanity and not wanting to do two or three trades, which I think are going to happen in this draft, I'm going to keep the Lions at number three, and they're going to be taking Okoda. So, with the departure of Darius Slay, Detroit is in an absolutely desperate need for any backhand help that they can get. I mean, they traded Quandre Diggs in the middle of the season, who was a solid cornerback option, and now trading probably a top three cornerback in the NFL, Darius Slay, to the Philadelphia Eagles. You need someone on the back end who's going to be able to cover that number one and really be someone who's a lockdown playmaker. And I think that's exactly what you would get. So when you watch him on tape, um, people sometimes say, oh, well, he didn't have any interceptions. Well, that's because teams just didn't want to throw his way anymore. They were so, I think when you look at a quarterback against him this year, had a quarterback rating sub 40 this year. That's insane for a guy getting targeted. And not only that, but the completion percentage against him was down. Everything you would want to see in a standout cornerback in college, Okoda just absolutely possessed every time. There was very few weaknesses that I saw in his game on tape. I think what really stood out to him is the size. He's a modern kind of NFL quarterback that you want. He has good size. Everyone kind of wants those corners who are 5'11 and above now to be able to compete with the Julio Jones of the world and whatnot. You want those guys who have the size. Not only that, but he has a tremendous amount of speed. I believe he ran a 4-4 at the NFL Combine, which is phenomenal. Again, something you always want to see in cornerbacks that have that ability to run stride for stride with these big receivers in the NFL. And credit to him, too. When teams did throw his way, he had interceptions. I mean, he three interceptions for the amount of times that teams would target him is actually, in my mind, pretty good. When you really watch games on tape, when he put someone, when someone was put out against him, 
it was basically the college version of Revis Island. I mean, the guy locked everyone down. You were not getting balls thrown his way. There were very few contested throws. They were hardly looking to his side of the field. It was certainly um, whoever Ohio State was playing that week, Okoda had their number one lockdown, and it was not necessarily close. Another phenomenal thing I think people overlook is that he wasn't flagged at all this this year. That's that's remarkable for a college defensive back. He was not flagged for pass interference this year. That's an, that shows you incredible discipline when the ball's in the air and when fighting with receivers. Because there's a lot of hand fighting going on. You can get easily flagged for something when going down the field, a little nudge or a hand there that'll constitute a flag. But Okoda didn't have one. That, that's absolutely remarkable in my mind. I think that shows, again, just superior discipline as a defensive back coming out into the NFL and I think that's something that NFL teams really want to see. Now, again, with like I've said, with every prospect, there's going to be those that have weaknesses. And again, I think Okoda has very few. I think when looking at him, he needs to be able to shed perimeter blocks a little bit better. He's a good run. He's a good run defender. I don't don't have that misconstru- uh, misconception. He knew when you watch him on tape. He knew when he was it was time to pop a running back when they were coming around his side of the perimeter. But I think at the same time, with those bigger wide receivers and those big guys, or if he got matched up and had a tie under the perimeter, he really had some struggles trying to shed those blocks. And again, I think that will be something that can be resolved and improved upon once he gets into the NFL, he gets a little bit bigger and he kind of learns the game more and has better coaching. I think that'll you'll see that kind of teeter off. Um, as something else too with the run game, I, he could have been just a little bit better at contain. I think at times when you watch games like they had against Michigan and Penn State, although Ohio State had won those games, there were still times when you could watch a on film and his perimeter and outside contain on runs left a little bit to be desired. Again, something that I think will be corrected just with how good of a prospect he is and how well of everything else he does. But I think those are two things that really need to be fixed. And the third two that I kind of saw, he had a little bit of a struggle with recognizing route combinations. I think when you watch from Ohio State's tape, the times that he did allow completion or got a little bit beat was because he just had a little bit of lapse or confusion in some of these more complex route combinations. But again, I think that's something that over time will be fixed. I have a lot of faith. I think Okoda could possibly be the best. Maybe he's not the best prospect in this draft purely off grade, but I think he might be the closest thing to a sure thing that you have in this draft, just purely off production and the caliber player that I think he is. And not only that, but from all reports about him in the combine, when he had these interviews with all these execs, he absolutely nailed them. From every indication that I've got, he's a great leader and he's an absolute phenomenal human being off the field as well. I think he's a perfect fit for Detroit for so many different reasons. And for me, I this is probably a high comp, but I from what I from what I remember about Patrick Peterson. I think Okoda is very resembling of Patrick Peterson in college. And that's why I gave him that comp. Um, Will he live up to Patrick Peterson? I mean, probably not. But he's the closest thing that I can really see to uh, Okoda. And I think, again, it's kind of the same thing I said with Chase Young. If you're the Lions and you get something that's close to Patrick Peterson with Okoda, you are absolutely thrilled. That means you're getting a perennial pro bowler a perennial all-pro. He's exactly what you want. To me, the Detroit Lions is a slam-dunk pick again. Take Jeff Okoda, third overall, Detroit Lions. Disagree with, but I'll get to my reasoning why. So with the New York Giants, I have them taking with a fourth overall pick, linebacker slash safety, Isaiah Simmons. Now look, 
I don't think this is the right pick. If I was a general manager for the New York Giants, I would not take Isaiah Simmons. And that's not because he's not a phenomenal prospect. I think Simmons is, again, one of these elite talents that has so much versatility and so much value that I think even though it might not be the right pick for the Giants, he'll still excel. But look, over the last few weeks and really the last few days, there's kind of been a lot more stirring with the Giants DM, Dave Gettleman. And he seems to have indicated pretty heavily that he wants to take Isaiah Simmons. Now look, if I was, again, if I was a GM for the Giants, I would take an offensive tackle like Tristan Wharfs from Iowa to protect your now oh-so-valuable Daniel Jones, Danny Dimes, as everyone calls him there in New York, even though I, I really don't understand that nickname. He was He's good, but Dimes, no, please no. But anyway, I think Isaiah Simmons will be the pick. I Again, I don't know if it'll be right, but I think he'll be the pick. And I think what they'll be getting with him is, like I said, an absolute rare combination of size and speed. He has versatility, and for a coach, that's great. So with a guy like Simmons who can play linebacker and safety, it allows the coaching staff so much more flexibility for game planning. You can stick him in the box and allow him to be a sure tackler like he has shown to be at Clemson. Or if they choose to, they can stick him in the back end and let him roam the center field or whatever you want and allow him to kind of control that secondary. Now, what he'll be, I don't know. Um, if it was up to me and I was a Giants coaching staff, I might actually, for the first let year, let him kind of roam around to both. Don't be hesitant to use that versatility because that's where you'll really find what kind of player he is and which position he has more potential to be Pro Bowl caliber. I think if I were to stick a label on him right now just based off of his build, and I think he will get better, bigger, I think he's more likely to be a linebacker in the Giants scheme. I think that makes more sense. I think linebackers tend to be more valuable in a defense than, say, a safety. Your linebackers are usually your, I guess you would say, the catcher equivalent to your defense. They're the ones who call the shots. They're usually your captains. So I think from that perspective, having Isaiah Simmons be a linebacker makes the most sense to me. Um, getting back to those strengths, he has elite, elite range from watching him. He all he flies around the field. He's like a heat-seeking missile when it comes to taking down running backs and wide receivers and tight ends. And he really a phenomenal. I really think overall a pretty good tackler. I know some people had knocked him maybe a little bit for being over aggressive at times, but when I watch Simmons, I think his tackling is what you would want. Um, I think another thing that stands out, he's an elite. I think he's a very good pass rusher from the linebacker position. He's with that speed. He's a strong blitzer coming up the a gap or possibly doing a little stunt mix. I think with him, his ability to close and the quarterback, his ability to finish is equally as impressive. And I think the big thing too, that stood out to me when I watched him on tape is that he's a strong open field tackler. And that's again, why I kind of feel like him at the linebacker position makes more sense. His ability to tackle in the open field is something I think most teams want at their linebacker position. I think with Simmons, with it, Simons, with him being one of those strengths, then you stick him there at that position. Now, I think when it terms when it comes to areas to improve, um, his read and response needs a little bit of work. I think at times when uh, this could just be a product of the pro uh, college game with there being more, I think, moving around than there is typically in the NFL. His read and response in terms of diagnosing diagnosing plays of where it's going to go like taking over misdirections or counter runs. He'll just have to be a little bit more fine-tuned when it comes to that. Um, I think, too, at times, when going back, though, to the safety position, and this is another reason why I don't know if he'll really be a safety overall, is that you could see at times he had confusion in coverage. Like, go back to when they played North Carolina. If you turn on that tape, 
there's several times where he seems to be a little bit lost in coverage. And I think that might just be a tad bit of the reason why he doesn't become a safety at the next level. And at times, too, the last weakness I kind of really have down here from watching tape on watching tape on him, he does at times lose contain. And I think that goes back to maybe his little bit over-aggressiveness and his wanting to just make a play. And I, I think that's fine. I think that's something that can be corrected. I think when you look at these weaknesses, the, the things that really stick out to you is if it's a glaring issue. And when I, when I watched Isaiah at Clemson, it wasn't like contain came up all the time. It was just you could tell at certain moments he would lose contain and the running back would maybe bust out a little more. He would lose contain on the pass rush. But these are things that are easily fixable. And I think for those reasons, I, I think Simmons is still a player who you would absolutely want at the number one four, number four overall pick. Um, for my player comp, I actually have him as someone who recently just came out. Uh, Darius Leonard is my comp for him. I think they both, in terms of looking at them, um, athleticism is obviously the first thing that jumps off with both of them. I think when you watch Leonard in Indianapolis, it's abundantly clear that he possibly could be the best athlete on that defense. And they that's a defense with Malik Hooker, so that's saying a lot. And I think they're both players that have the capability as a defensive player to really change and take over a game and can control what an offense is doing. So yeah, even though I don't think it's the right pick, I, I will personally, if I was a GM, if I was Dave Gettleman, I would take care of protecting my quarterback first. But I think from all indications that have been coming out through the media, through NFL Network and ESPN, that it makes the most sense that with what Gettleman's leaning with, that Isaiah Simmons is going to be the number four overall picks. All right, now moving to the number five overall pick. Now this pick, I think, may shock a few people. Now, with the fifth overall pick, I have the Miami Dolphins taking Justin Herbert, quarterback, Oregon. Now, I heard probably, if anyone does listen to this, Hear people saying, oh, her, no, it would be Tua. It has to be Tua. Look at what Tua did in college. Tua's the elite prospect. Oh, it doesn't matter the hip injuries there. No, that that to me is just immediately eyewash. If you're going to sit here and tell me that Tua Tungavailoa with that, a, a fractured hip is a major injury. There's very few players that come back from that and come back to the same strength. I mean, not only that, but he had four different separate surgeries. That's astronomical. But that we'll get to Tua later on that. But when going back to Herbert, I think what you look at with him is that he has the prototypical mold of what you want in an NFL quarterback. He has the size. He's a 6'6", 236 frame. That's huge. That's going to play in the NFL. That'll play. Also, he has no real major injuries. Okay, he might have had some small tweaks there and there, but it's not a surgery, and it sure as heck ain't a broken hip. Now, continuing with what he has going for him, his arm is massive. There is not a better quarterback in this year's draft with a better arm than Justin Herbert. The kid can absolutely sling it. If you watched him at the Combine, it was almost probably a pro scout's dream when looking at an arm when watching Justin Herbert. He had ease hitting guys in stride over 50 yards. It was not a difficult task for him. Um, and not only that, but I think with going along, a lot of times with these big arm quarterbacks, there's things that maybe like, oh, well, they don't go through their progressions well. Oh, they're too much of a gunslinger. I think it's almost the opposite with that with Justin Herbert. He actually goes through his progressions very well. And I don't know if that was something that they preached heavily at Oregon, because it kind of seemed at times, like if you looked at the last really good quarterback to come out of Oregon, Marcus Mariota, he's another quarterback who, though a big arm and was an elite talent, and maybe his career hasn't panned out as well as many had hoped, 
he was still someone who was very patient and was very a high IQ football knowledge. I think Herbert, again, is a guy who has a high IQ for the NFL. And I think that's what is, uh, is points out to me as obvious when it looks like he's going through his progressions very well. Now, another thing that really stood out to me and another thing that helps him break the mold or the stereotype of this, I guess you would say, gunslinger mentality is that when you watched him, he's not a guy who's going to stare down a wide receiver. He actually, when you watch tape, if you have the opportunity to watch it from the 360 where it's if the camera that's behind him, his eyes lock that safety really well. He keeps that safety in the center of the field a lot, so that doesn't give him the opportunity to go back and forth, right? The safety doesn't have that chance to jump routes. I think that's a big reason why he had a, I believe it was 50-plus touchdown to six interception ratio, uh, overall touchdown-interception ratio. That, that's phenomenal. I mean, again, I'll get to some of his knocks later, but um, I think it, another thing that really stood out to me and I don't know if this is just an Oregon quarterback thing, but I think when you watch um, Herbert play, his motion is super repeatable. There's not a lot of herky-jerkiness. There's not any wasted motion. It's repeatable. It's quiet. It's simple. It at times may be border on robotic. And, I mean, okay, yeah, you don't love that. But at the same time, you love, absolutely love, if you're a GM, a quarterback who's repeatable and simple. I think it's something that's very attractive. Not only that, but his rocket arm, if you watch games when he really was given the ability to just let loose, his arm fit balls into windows that I don't think a lot of other quarterbacks are going to be able to do in the NFL. There's times where he threads the needle big time, big time. And maybe it didn't show up in the bigger games against Wisconsin or in the Pac-12 championship against Utah. But overall, that that big arm is going to cause problems, I think, in the next level. I think you're going to see that. Now, when moving to the weaknesses, there are certainly a few with Herbert. I think one of the big things that points out to me, or stands out, I should say, is he doesn't have a lot. He, he struggles with touch. His touch when going outside of the hashes, when you really want to see maybe a good lofted ball on, I don't know, say a, a, just a little 10-yard fade route or something like that down towards the red zone, he didn't really have that too much in his arsenal. And I, I think it's going to be something that coaches are really going to want to stress with him at the next level because touch is huge. I mean, there's you can't be an NFL quarterback if you don't have the touch near the red zone and if you don't have touch outside the numbers. Um, not only that, um, I think as even though I said he has that rocket arm that allowed him to fit uh, balls into tight windows, um, ball placement was still at times an issue. Um Actually, according to Pro Football Focus, he had the highest percentage of attempts that were at his fault or the QB fault rate. So 15.3% of incompletions were actually attributed to his throwing. And that's was, I believe, maybe I think it was top two in Pro Football Focus ratings last year. That's not that's that's something that needs to be changed for sure. Um, as well, he really struggled, interestingly, with short passes. So with passes that were 19 yards or shorter. He had the most QB faulted incompletions. That's something that absolutely has to change. I I think, I mean, I can't think, you can't think of a quarterback that makes it in the NFL who struggles with 20-yard passes. Those should be those should be your bread and butter. That's what moves the chains. I mean, the rocket arm's great, but if you can't, if you can't move and get first downs by just keeping balls, you know, in front of you from a yard to 19 yards, that's that's a big issue. I think it too, um, for a guy who has such a big arm, 
I think he just he was hesitant to let it eat sometimes. He just didn't let the big dog eat with his right arm when he should. I think I don't know if that was a scheming thing at Oregon because when I did watch Oregon's games, it did seem as if they almost restricted some of the playbook and play calling until the second half with him. But when I watched him, it just seemed like for a guy with such a big arm, he didn't just, you know, just let it go sometimes. And I, I think as, you know, the gunslinger mentality that, you know, I think it's a, a good and a bad thing. I think, for example, I think Joe Burrow is a guy who's just a, will just at times just let it, will just throw it. I mean, and that'll get you in trouble. But at the same time, his will, players who have the willingness to do that, I think having a step above. I, I think you have to be willing to let the ball go sometimes. You have to be more willing to give 50-50 balls a chance. You have to have trust in your receivers, your tight ends to make plays for you. And I, I think that's something that definitely Herbert will need to improve upon. But at the same time, with this all being said, I, I think Herbert's the right pick for the Dolphins. And I think something that was really telling about his his likeliness of going to Miami is Tua Tungvalu's agent came out yesterday and just started blasting on media. I mean, absolutely blasting on media. I don't, and what that tells me is that he's like, he's scared that Tua's not going to be a premium pick. He's not going to be a top pick. And while I think that's wrong, I do think that um, that tells you something. I think Miami is going to, it won't shock me, and I, I think I'm right. I, Herbert will be the fifth overall pick to Miami. And I, in terms of his player comparison, I have him being most closely looked at to Carson Wentz. Now, Carson Wentz was probably a little bit better of a prospect coming out, obviously, because he was a number two overall pick that year. I have Herbert going at number five. But I think when you look at their play styles with size, athleticism, arm, they check a lot of the same boxes. Overall production in college, I think Wentz definitely and certainly had a little bit more. But overall, they're very similar caliber prospects in terms of their mold and fit and the way that they like to play. So I think, again, number five overall pick. It's going to surprise some people, but Justin Herbert, quarterback from Oregon, Miami, you got your new quarterback. All right, so now moving to the number six overall pick. And I think I think this pick with the way my mock has gone is going to make a lot of Los Angeles Chargers fans pretty darn happy. Because with the number six overall pick, I have the L.A. Chargers, formerly the San Diego Chargers, and should be still the San Diego Chargers, I have them taking Tua Tungvaluwa, quarterback, Alabama. Chargers fans rejoice because I know, I know you folks want him. Look, Chargers get a little bit lucky here because with me, I have Herbert going number five. And I know it may have sounded like a little bit as if I was bashing Tua for his injuries. And I might have been a little bit. I'll get, I'll say that. But all that being said, Tua is still an elite prospect. He might have the highest ceiling of quarterbacks in this draft. Now, when you look at Tua, there's a lot of things you like, a lot of things. First off, I know Anthony Lynn for a fact has said multiple times that he wants to change his scheme up, that he wants a more athletic dual threat quarterback in the backfield for him, playing either in shotgun or underneath center for his Los Angeles Chargers. And that's exactly what I think Tua can be. He does fit that traditional mold of a new dual threat quarterback in the NFL. He's a little bit, he looks a little bit like Russell Wilson. We'll get back to that later. But moving on from his, what his other strengths are, he's got great touch. His release is really good too, and his arm talent is elite. He has very good arm talent. There's a lot of times when you watch him play with Alabama. I think um, the most notable throw is when they were playing LSU, and he hit, um, I believe it was Dean Smith, number six, the wide receiver for Alabama. Solid, talented wide receiver there. 
but he hit him completely in stride and I think it was about a 60-yard touchdown pass. You love to see stuff like that. Um, as well, two is really good in between the hashes. Really good in between the hashes. With I think another really big thing with me that stands out with Tua is he doesn't turn the ball over. You absolutely love to see. It might be one of my highest check marks when looking at quarterbacks coming out of college is not being is not turning that ball over because if it's it's hard enough not to turn it over in college and it gets way harder when you get into the NFL not turning that ball over. But Tua doesn't turn the ball over at Alabama. He had a career eight to one touchdown interception ratio. That's really good. That's exactly what you want. That's an elite ability to have a nice touchdown to interception ratio. Um, good upper body release. When you watch his upper body, there's not a lot of wasted motion. He has a quicker release than a guy like Burrow, and I think maybe oh, just a little bit slower, if not the same caliber as Herbert. Um, and not only that, but he's an incredibly, I think he's a strong leader. You could see, and I don't know if it was just because Alabama players knew they had lost their chance at the title when he went out, but Alabama players, when Tua was under center, they knew who their leader was. It was Tua Tungavailoa. He absolutely captured that team when he threw that touchdown against Georgia in the national championship two years ago. And Tua's leadership skills are off his charts. I think that's something you also really want in a quarterback. You want that guy who can lead your team onto that battlefield or the gridiron or whatever the heck you want to call it. You want to get fancy with it. Um, another thing that he does really well, I think... It, Something I think really all three of these first three quarterbacks do well is they have good eyes. And Tua is another guy that has good eyes. He does not let them wander. He doesn't stare down receivers. He keeps that safety locked in center field so they can't jump routes unless they really want to take a chance. I guess really something that Tua did well. Um, in terms of my concerns for Tua, um, he fails to deliver under duress. I think really the thing that stood out a lot is when he was faced with not even heavy pressure. It was just kind of some medium pressure where the pocket kind of collapsed a little bit around him. He tended to panic. And I think going off of that, he's not as nearly, he's not even close. He's not always close, but he's not nearly as talented when it comes to playing off script like a guy like Joe Burrow is. That was something that really stood out to it. Not the greatest off script player. I think that's something that will evolve over time. He's, he's really young, obviously. Um, I think, too, another thing is that uh, timing needs work. When, when you watch Tua, um, even though I pointed out earlier that he had that nice bomb against LSU to Smith, um, there were too many times where I watched him on tape where his receivers would actually have to slow down to the ball. I think that's just like, an issue with timing. It's not an issue with arm strength. He just has to be more fluid in his timing to be able to hit those receivers in stride and not have them break stride or anything like that. But the biggest question that Tua is going to have and has had for the last five months is injury and durability. Now, Sandy, I'm sorry, Los Angeles with his sixth overall pick is going to be taking a huge risk, a massive risk with taking Tua Tungvaluwa. You're taking a guy who has had multiple surgeries in two years in college and was coming off a career-threatening injury. It wasn't just season-ending for him there in Alabama. It was career-threatening. There is real belief that Tua, with that fractured hip, was not going to play again. And now doctors have said he's 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 ready to go, but they haven't cleared him medically. There's a big difference between him saying he's ready to go and a doctor saying he's medically ready to return to the field. Now, with that being said, I think if Tua stays healthy, you are probably looking at the quarterback with the highest ceiling from this draft. I don't think there's a question. There's a reason... It was tank for Tua at the beginning of the 2019 season. Not blow for Burrow, as it later became known as, or what I called it as. 
But Tua has the highest ceiling. He has a lot of things going for him. Great leader. He's a, he's a lot what you want to see. My player comp for him, which I, again, it might be a little bit lofty, but I see someone who's could be something like Russell Wilson. He looks a little bit, and I think left-handed quarterbacks for me are a little bit harder to judge. Um, there's not a lot of lefties to go by. Um, he could be a little bit like Mark Burnell. And before people are like, oh, Mark Burnell, oh my God, that Jaguars quarterback, Mark Burnell still went to two AFC championship games, if I'm not misconstrued there. But overall, I think his game does resemble Russell Wilson. I think he has an incredibly high ceiling. Just the biggest concern if you are a Chargers fan and you get him at number six is if this guy can stay healthy. If that hip injury flares up or he has another string of injuries, you're going to be kicking yourself. But I think he's worth the risk. So San Diego, I keep saying San Diego. See, that's an issue. Los Angeles, you have your new quarterback under center for you. Los Angeles Chargers, number six overall pick, Tua Tungavailoa. Rejoice, Chargers fans. You got him. All right, now, for coming up to the last team that I got picking for today on this episode, we're going to go ahead to the eighth overall pick in the Arizona Cardinals. Now, for this pick, I was kind of up in the air in between who I had the Cardinals taking. I originally had them taking Jedrick Willis, the offensive tackle from Alabama, but after kind of watching his tape and, his con- and comparing his combi- combine numbers to that of Tristan Worf from the offensive tackle of Iowa, I ended up having the Cardinals take Tristan Worfs from Iowa. Now, when looking at Arizona, um, obviously with the acquiring of DeAndre Hopkins, which, by the way, it might be the biggest fleecing, absolutely fleecing of a trade in the past 10 years that I can think of with the Cardinals acquiring DeAndre Hopkins for essentially nothing. Not only that, but they just dumped off David Johnson's contract, who hasn't done anything in the last two years. But that, that's a that's a different story. But anyway, with that acquisition, the biggest priority for the Arizona Cardinals becomes protecting their franchise, yes, their franchise, Kyler Murray, for the foreseeable future. And I felt the best player who would allow them to do that would be Tristan Worfs. Now, um, when looking at Worfs, there's there's definitely some big things that stand out that make him look like a very viable prospect at the next level. First, Really good athlete. Now, this guy was a state champion wrestler, and now while you say, okay, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it shows he's a damn good athlete because he can't just be some sort of hack and be a state champion in wrestling. But he's got great lateral quickness. When you watch him move side to side, it's it looks like elite quickness moving that direction. There is no slowing. He doesn't have brick feet. He's not slowing the hips. Um to go along with that, like I've kind of already said, he's a lean and a very good athlete overall. Um, another big thing I think Worfs has going for him is that he's versatile. There's actually been discussion among other scouts. I know that Matt Miller has possibly brought up the idea. Daniel Jeremiah, who works the NFL Network, has said that he could actually not only be a tackle, but if a team felt the need, they could move him inside to play the guard position. He's shown that he's a good enough athlete and to be able to play well when they did swing him inside at times to play that position. So I think it's another big thing that teams can look at. I think when you as a prospect have a lot of versatility, you then instill more value into yourself as a player. So I think from that standpoint, he makes a lot of sense as well. I mean, the dude is an absolute beast in the gym. I mean, this guy is upper body is fantastic when it comes to just pure strength. I don't think there. I don't know if there's a stronger offensive lineman prospect in this draft. Um, 
you can just see with his hands during tape when he's guard when he's having to guard these defensive end. and there's good I mean the talent that he's facing in the Big Ten is elite talent and he's got some nice punch hands and stuff like that he keeps guys off his quarterback and really overall for someone who some people consider him more as a raw prospect he has pretty dang solid technique when you look at him he's he's stable his feet are good and that's again tributes to him being a good athlete upper body like i've said is good and his hands are really good and i think just that culmination he makes more sense than jedrick willis does here in this spot um when it comes to weaknesses though there are a couple things that do stand out with um wharfs here um, one is it, these first two things I have kind of go hand in hand. The first one is being overall, he's inconsistent at times. Now, when you watch this play, he does at times leave things to be desired. And I think he, it, to me, he gets frustrating at times too, just a little bit because he has these dominant traits, like these such great hands. He's such a good athlete, but he doesn't use them in a dominant fashion. He doesn't explode all the way. His potential does not always show when it's on the tape. I think that's the biggest qualm some people will have with him is that he's not using these dominant tools in a dominant fashion all the time, which you would love to see. Um, and I, I think the big, and I think another really big thing that you see with wharfs that maybe cause for concern is if you watch him, sorry about that. If you watch him on tape, he plays on his toes a little bit too much. Now, what that does tell us is I think he might have some ankle tightness. And although he's such a good athlete, I think at times can cover that up. But I think when you watch him, him getting on his toes is not only good because, okay, there's good defense, defensive ends you're going to meet up in the NFL. If you're playing on your toes, they're going to probably blast you back. And it's not to say to play on your heels, but to play on your toes, not always the best thing at all times, especially when that just kind of shows probably to teams you got a little bit of stiff ankles, ankle soreness and whatnot. So something that he certainly needs to fix on overall. Um, to me, I think Wharfs makes more sense again than Willis does. Not to say that um, Willis isn't going to be a very good prospect because I, I, he certainly will appear in my mock draft here in the first round as we progress forward. But um, I think overall, when um, looking at that, I think for the Cardinals, what makes the most sense is a guy like Wharfs, who, like I said, brings value, versatility, good athlete. He's what you want. I think he's exactly what you need to protect Kyler Murray. And I think that's why with Arizona, they'll go with Tristan Worfs. Now, just to go for an overall recap for my first eight picks, just to make sure that everyone's on the same page, and if you feel the need necessary, you can just have these at your disposal. But first, we had Joe Burrow to Cincinnati, who I believe, and I will make this statement right here, Joe Burrow will bring a Super Bowl title to Cincinnati with that offense. You can mock me for what you want, but I believe it's true. You're pairing him with Mixon. You're pairing him with A.J. Green, you're pairing him with Tyler Boyd, and you're pairing him with John Ross. That's a lot of elite offensive talent to walk into. Second, we had the Redskins taking Chase Young. That's an elite defensive end, someone you need. A need is always to rush the passer in the NFL. I think the Redskins get a great player with that right there. Uh, The Detroit Lions, the third overall pick, we had taking Jeff Okada. Who, uh, I'm sorry, Okoto from Ohio State. Ohio State pumps defensive backs into the NFL. This is just another example. I think he's going to be a great prospect, possibly the most sound slash blue chip prospect you have in this draft. There might not be more of a sure thing. Fourth overall, a little bit of a surprise. I'm playing a hunch here with Gettleman liking Isaiah Simmons, but I have Isaiah Simmons going to the New York Giants. I think it could be a good pick. Not what I would take, but from like what I said, with Gettleman and all the indications that seem to be coming out, 
I think Simmons is going to be a New York Giant. Fifth overall, had the Miami Dolphins taken Justin Herbert. Again, like this kid a lot. Do not roll your eyes, Dolphins fans. He's going to be very good. At number six, we had good old Tua Tungvaluwa from Alabama. The Chargers get someone who I think the fan base wants. I think the fan base needs, and I think is going to be a great successor to Phillip Rivers, who is now in Indianapolis. And then moving to the number seven overall pick, we have the Carolina Panthers taking defensive tackle Derek Brown from Auburn. Again, I think a dominant force up front that you want if you're the Carolina Panthers. This guy will help restore that dominant front the Panthers used to have. A great player for Matt Rule to bring around for the first round. Good pick. Love that. Lock it in. And then for the eighth pick, my last pick for today's podcast, I had the Arizona Cardinals taking Tristan Worf's offensive tackle from Iowa. I think his versatility and his overall athleticism, along with his lateral quickness and solid hands, very solid hands, with the reason that he's the eighth overall pick in this year's first round draft. All right, so that's going to go ahead and conclude my first eight. I'll have another eight for you guys on Monday. Now, again, if you want to look these over and scrutinize them, that's fine. But I'm pretty damn confident in these first eight picks. I'm going to be even more confident with my following picks of 9 through 17. Don't sleep on this. Thank you guys for listening to the RPO podcast.